We're still in our study of Philippians. We're going to make some impressive headway today by my standards. Philippians chapter 1, the title of this message is Joy in Gospel Suffering. Joy in Gospel Suffering. It's important for us to realize as a church that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. That is incredibly important. So at the end of today's message, we will be praying together in small groups for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. We are commanded in Scripture to do this. Hebrews 13.3 tells us to remember those in prison as though you yourself were in prison, to remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies, since we are one body and we're called to suffer with those who suffer. Since the beginning of Christianity, men and women and children have suffered for their belief in and their proclamation of Jesus Christ. And in the text that we're going to look at today and in the context of the book of Philippians, Paul is suffering for his faith and proclamation of Jesus Christ. He's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. It's interesting to know that there are more Christians being persecuted for their faith in Christ today, today, than at any other time in history. Over 100,000 men, women, and children will be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ this year. It's not something you hear about in the news. It's not something that makes headlines, but it's a reality in our world today. But what is even a more profound reality is that God is working even these things for his glory and for good, which as we spoke of in a previous lesson is the ultimate display of God's power, of his dominion. It is domination, that God can take what his opponents mean for evil and work it for ultimate good. And you need to know that Jesus dominates. And that's not always apparent in this day and age, but there is coming a day where his domination will be open for every eye to see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and of earth. Lord, we thank you for that truth and we ask that it would penetrate our lives today in a radical way. Your Lordship and the good news of your Lordship, this news that has been brought to us that even though we fall so short of your glory, we are so loved and accepted because of the cross and who you are. The good news of who you are would transform our lives. Lord, we confess that we live too much for ourselves. We're too concerned with fleeting things. We make our lives about lesser things. We want them to be about the ultimate thing, which is you and your glory and your purposes in the world. And so, Lord, we would ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to hear and to comprehend and to receive and respond to what you have to say to our church today. We ask together that you'd please anoint me to preach your truth, that I would be faithful to you and to your word. We ask that you burden our hearts with the things that burden you, that you give us a bigger view of our beautiful King and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Amen. Well, let's start reading in verse 12. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, Now, I want you to know, brothers, 
that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. We'll stop right there for a moment. Paul here is testifying of the fact that even though his circumstances are difficult, and he's suffering, and he's restrained, and in the physical realm, he's, he's been minimized and, and marginalized. He's experiencing pain. He's testifying that even in light of those things, it's working out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's telling his audience that God is working bad things for good things. This is not the way that Paul wanted to go to Rome. Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. Rome was the epicenter of the world. You know, all, all roads lead to Rome is the saying. We still have it today. And all roads went out from Rome. It was the epicenter of the world. It was the center of culture and power. And Paul had always wanted to go there because Paul's concern was the gospel and most people hearing about the gospel. And so that was the opportune place to go, the strategic spot. And he wanted to go, I'm sure, and, and establish mission centers and theological schools for training and, and plant more churches and openly preach the gospel and preach the gospel on the street corners and in the Colosseums. And, and he wanted to establish a stronghold for Christianity that would reach the world. Of course he did. Paul was an ambitious guy. Wanted as many people to hear as possible. You see, but God did it differently. God had Paul get to Rome, but as a prisoner. God allowed Paul to go to Rome, but in chains, in pain and suffering and in hardship. It wasn't the way that he wanted his life and ministry to look, but it is the way that God deemed would be best. And Paul's now testifying Even though this isn't what I expected, even though this is hard, it's working out for good. For the greater cause of the gospel, he's telling them that the gospel is having a greater effect in his difficulty than it would have otherwise. God was able to do more by taking Paul to Rome in chains than if Paul had gone there in freedom. He mentions here that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ was well known through the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was an elite group of fighting men of Rome. They were the governor's personal guards. And Paul was chained to one of them 24-7. They were the elite in the military world. How else would Paul have gained access to the elite in the military world? And Rome was a militaristic society that conquered the world, how else would Paul get access to the military elite unless he had gone under military escort, chained to special forces at all times? See, God is always doing something more than we think. And so they heard about it, and these elite soldiers were being converted. And so men and women in Caesar's household were being converted He mentions in chapter 4, all the believers in Rome greet you, even those in Caesar's household. How would Paul ever have gained access to the White House, so to speak? 
as this surly little Jewish guy who bore scars all over his body that seemed to cause trouble wherever he went. Went. <laughs> want. <laughs> wherever he went. And, and yet men and women in Caesar's household were being converted. And we know that years later, Rome would become a Christian nation. At least seemingly so. And at the moment, it's anti-Christian. We're only about five or six years from the period of Nero when he would be burning Christians, gutting Christians, slaughtering them in the streets and the Colosseums. But because of the way God did it, more people were able to hear and more people in strategic places. God is more strategic than you think. The pain in your life is by God's design. You either believe in the sovereignty of God or you don't. You either cling to that or you've given up on that. You either believe in a God who is on the throne and in control and good, or you believe in happenstance and mere chance and something less than what the Bible says. And he says also because of his imprisonment that more Christians were preaching with courage. They saw Paul, how he suffered for the gospel and and how that was being effective. And they said, okay, well, then we're going to go for it. We're not going to hold back. If Paul's going to do it like that, then we're going to do it. So his example was a good example. More men and women were being set on fire to preach Jesus Christ. This is the good old effect of peer pressure. Peer pressure makes the world go around. I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. Peer pressure makes the world go around for good or for evil. I've been skateboarding lately um, at the skate park in Santa Barbara because my son got into going there. And at first his mom was taking him. I, I didn't think it would last. You know, I'm not like a skateboard guy. I'm like a surf guy. So surfers, skaters, it's like, mm. And uh, so my son started skateboarding in the skate park and his mom was taking him. And finally I'm like, I can't, I can't have his mom really taking him to the skate park. I, I got to do this. And so I went once and I kind of just stood around and watched him. I was like, this is stupid. I'm not a sideline type of guy. I want to actually skateboard. So I went and bought a skateboard, you know, an old school one like they had in the 80s because that was my heyday. And uh, started skateboarding in the park and I'm terrible. Okay, when you're six foot six, you're just not good at anything. I'm not good at basketball. I'm horrible at those sort. I'm, I'm not good at anything. So I'm really bad at skateboarding. And when you fall at my size, it's like trauma. Immediate, hella lift, you're just 911. Just, it's just trauma when you're my size and you fall. So skateboarding and me are not a good mix. But I've been going. I've been going with some friends. And uh, they're better than me. Everybody there is better than me. Everybody, including my 10-year-old son. And so, you know, they're doing this stuff and they're like dropping in and grinding and doing turns and the peer pressure is making me do things I never would have done before, right? Because they're doing it. So I'm like, I have to do it. I don't want to be lame. I got to do it. My friends are doing it. Everybody's doing it. So I'm taking greater risks than I ever would have before if it wasn't for the peer pressure coming from my friends. And they're telling me, do it. Don't be such a wimp, do it. And so of course, because my ego is this six, six, huge, I'm going to do it, and I'm doing it. Peer pressure just has this amazing way of making us do stuff we would never do. And and Paul, being in prison for preaching the gospel, other Christians in Rome were seeing that, and they said, by golly, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to preach it with more... I said, by golly. (laughs) I said, by golly. 
And when I did, I saw our junior high pastor turn to his wife and be like, my golly. And I lost my train of thought. Thanks, Chris. By golly, I'm going to preach more, they said. And so Paul's hardship, Paul's circumstances, by the sovereignty of God, were working out for the good. It didn't mean it was comfortable for him. It wasn't. It wasn't easy for him. It wasn't fun for him. But it was working out for the greater cause. Okay, are you your greatest cause or is there something or someone bigger than yourself? For the greater cause of Christ and the glory of God, it was working out. And so this helped Paul to believe what he already believed, that God was in control. That all the factors of time and space were in his hands. That nothing happened by chance. That all the varied thread of circumstances were being wove together in a pattern that would result in God's ultimate glory and even in Paul's good. Now, I hate poetry. I hate all poetry all the time. I hate poetry and poems and poets, but I read this one. (laughs) I read this one that was fitting, so I'm going to share it with you. It's, the context is uh, weaving, you know, like people used to weave things, carpets and things. It says, not till each loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly, Shall God reveal the pattern and explain the reason why? The dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern which he planned. It's the only poem I like in the whole world. (laughs) Basically says those dark times in life are as necessary for what God is doing as the bright, easy, good, fun, exciting times in life. I believe that to be true. Paul believed that to be true. The the Bible witnesses to that and life seems to bear that out. And you see, Paul was more concerned about the cause of Christ than his own comfort. Most Americans are not. There are Christians around the world who are. We'll hear about some of them today. Paul is one of them. He's more concerned with the cause of Christ than his own comfort. And Paul was willing, listen to this, Paul was willing to suffer injustice He was willing to suffer injustice and hardship for the greater cause of Christ. He trusts God's purposes, so he didn't fear present circumstances. And he didn't get caught up. Paul's the type of guy that would get all caught up in self-pity about it. And we can do that. And you know, I've I've been in and out of that over the last year with my daughter's cancer. You can get caught up in self-pity and just have these times where you're just, ah, why, and so on and so forth. I read this week, Oswald Chambers said this, Self-pity is of the devil. And if I wallow in it, I cannot be used by God for his purposes in the world. Self-pity is of the devil. And if I wallow in it, can't be used by God for his purposes in the world. I think that's so true. And I just want to testify for a moment, consonant with Paul's experience of the goodness of God in my own family's trials with Daisy and her two rounds of cancer. It's just like Paul's experience. People have become Christians because of Daisy's story. They've heard about it or they've gotten connected somehow through it. They've heard the gospel and we've heard of a lot of people just becoming Christians because this little girl is suffering of cancer. Heard about a lot of people coming back to the Lord. 
We've heard about a lot of people facing circumstances who are doing it with more courage and more faith in Christ and more trust in Christ and more faithfulness to Christ because of the example of this little girl. I marvel at that. That's, that's amazing to me. But, but you see, I, Paul's saying it's worth it. I want you guys to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater cause of the gospel. In other words, hey guys, I know I'm in prison, but it's worth it. And I just want to testify because we're all friends. I know my daughter has cancer for the second time, but it's worth it. It's not an easy thing to say as a dad. I want to testify to the truth. And that has everything to do with who God is and what God is doing and not who we are and anything we've done. And Paul has this overarching sense of joy in the midst of his trials. We were driving home from five days in the hospital last Sunday. That's why I wasn't here with you guys. We just checked out Sunday after her latest round of chemo. And we're driving home. Kate's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. Daisy's in the back seat. My little bald baby, she's got the puke bowl by her side, you know, because she just finished chemo. And Kate and I are just talking about life and just reflecting. And my wife driving along says, our lives are just so charmed. We're just, we just have such charmed lives. We're just so blessed. And I look at her and I look at my bald cancer kid and I look back at her. I'm like, right on, woman. Right on. Way to just cling to Jesus in difficult times. I mean, bald cancer kid. And she's saying, our lives are so charmed. It's like, hello. But, but you see, that, that's a possibility with Jesus. And that's what Paul is experiencing because Jesus is something greater than anything else this life has to offer. And he is more wonderful and can satisfy us so deeply that any of the difficulties of this life don't even compare. Now, as I've testified in the good things, I have to be honest about the bad things. There's also times where we, we're full of self-pity and we're sad about it and, and, and we're depressed. There are those times too. Yesterday was one of those for, for us. It was just a really hard day with Daisy and we're just both kind of feeling down. And if you have asked my wife yesterday, is our life charm? She would have said, no, our life sucks. But sometimes we're getting at what Paul's getting at here. Jesus is really wonderful enough to sustain us and he really is present enough to convince us that he's powerful enough to transform us and even the world through the worst things. You see, the gospel tells us that when it comes to our relationship with God and the benefits of our salvation, we don't bring anything to the table. Okay, the good news about Jesus Christ informs us that when it comes to our relationship with God, we don't bring anything to the table. Everything is brought from God's side. And that's a good thing. If you have pride, you you feel like, what do you mean I don't bring anything to the table? I bring me to the table and I'm awesome. No, you're not. The Bible doesn't say you are. It says you're loved, but that doesn't mean you're awesome. Daisy had two little frogs recently in a cage that died. She loved those frogs. They weren't awesome. They were frogs. Just because you're loved doesn't mean you're awesome. We don't bring anything to the table. God brings everything to the table. That's a good thing. It's like in our life groups. Many of you are in life groups here at the church. And uh, 
we, we try to mix up our life groups age-wise. So you've got like college kids and older married couples and stuff like that. And often in our life groups, we'll have potlucks. So if you're a college kid and it's a potluck, you don't want to bring anything to the table. You want the moms and the grandmas to bring everything to the table, right? That's what you want. You show up with a bag of Doritos and you're like, I'm here. And like generic Vaughn soda, strawberry. You want the moms and the grandmas to bring everything to the table. When it comes to our relationship with God, you want God to bring everything to the table. And that's what the gospel tells us. Is that we don't bring anything to the table. And so the benefits of knowing God in Christ and the benefits of our salvation are fully dependent upon God. And so everything in our lives then are by grace. Everything in our life is by grace. It's a free gift of God. It's undeserved. So what that means then is that we understand because of the gospel that we're not entitled to anything. We didn't bring anything to the table. We're not entitled to anything. God brings it all as a free gift of grace. God holds title to everything. So for Paul then, how this worked out in his life was that when the circumstances were difficult, when he lost his freedom, it didn't ruin him because he didn't feel entitled to things because he understood that the gospel tells us that God brings everything to the table. So so we're able to let go of that sense of entitlement. So when he lost his freedom, it didn't ruin him because his joy wasn't dependent upon his circumstances or comforts afforded him. Dependent upon someone greater. When people wanted to cause Paul distress, as we'll read in the next few verses in a few minutes, when they wanted to promote themselves at Paul's expense, which happens to us all the time in relationships, It didn't ruin Paul, it didn't shipwreck him because his identity wasn't based on being better than other people or how other people felt about him, but his identity was based upon being accepted by God in Christ. That's what caused him to feel how he felt. That's where he derived his self-worth. It wasn't because he was better than other people or people thought well of him. You see, if the foundation of our identity is things, like the thing that makes me who I am or makes me happy is this position I have or this money I have or having this name or this stuff or these relationships, if that's your foundation for happiness, then when you find yourself suffering and we'll all suffer, then it's going to seem as though you're being pulled away from your foundation of happiness and where your identity is secure. If your identity is in things, in human relationships, if your happiness is there, then suffering, when they die, when you go bankrupt, when you lose that thing, then you'll feel in your life, I'm being pulled away from my foundation of joy, so how can I have joy? But if your identity and joy are anchored in Jesus so that you're able to say, everything I need, I already possess in him, then when you suffer, it drives you deeper into your source of joy. Everything I have, I already possess in Jesus. 
So when I suffer, I'm merely driven deeper into my source of joy rather than feeling as though I'm being pulled away from my source of joy, which is these other lesser things. That's, that's why the, the, the thrust of the Bible is to make Christ supreme because everything else will leave you heartbroken. Because God loves you, he invites you to make him supreme. So suffering then shows us where we are locating our identity. Okay, when you suffer, it will reveal what you're building your life upon. What you're depending on to make life worth living will be revealed in the most difficult times of suffering. This means that suffering in and of itself does not rob you of joy. What robs you of joy, Christian, is wrong affections and allegiances. Affections and allegiances that are misplaced. In other words, idolatry is what the Bible would call that. Making lesser things overly important things. If you find yourself suffering and you're angry, bitter, always joyless, it probably means that you've idolized something you, you, you feel entitled to something and you're losing that something. And so now you feel angry, insecure, bitter. You've lost your joy. Anything that shipwrecks us when we lose it was too important com- in comparison to Christ. Anything. I don't care if it's your daughter. If it ruins you, It was an idol. I know that's hard. I don't say that easily. Entitlement and self-pity stem from our belief that we deserve more than we're getting. The gospel, however, frees us to revel in our expendability. The gospel frees us to rejoice in the fact that we are expendable, that we are not ultimate, that the world doesn't revolve around us. It frees us from that sense of entitlement which always disappoints. The gospel, the good news about Jesus and God's love for us in Christ frees us to say, good, I'm not the center of everything and I don't deserve everything. And I haven't brought anything to the table. And only then do we find ultimate joy because any pain only pushes us closer to the source, which is Christ. The gospel alone provides us with a foundation to maintain radical joy and remarkable loss. And joylessness and bitterness in the midst of pain, happens when we lose something that we are holding on to more tightly than God. Something happened in your life and it's left you void of joy and bitter. You were holding on to something more tightly than you were holding on to Jesus. And that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Paul Tripp posed this question. He said, how is your present disappointment discouragement or grief a window on what has actually captured your heart 
What you're going through, how does it expose what is actually most important to you? How does it reveal the lesser things that we've been depending on in too great of a way? How does it reveal where we're forming our identity in places and things and in sources other than Jesus Christ? How is your current disappointment, pain, or grief a window on what has actually captured your heart? Verse 15, Paul goes on to say, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they're causing me distress in my imprisonment. What am I supposed to think about this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this... I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. While Paul is in prison in Rome, other people are carrying on the ministry that he would have been carrying on. And some are doing it, it says, from love, right? Because they love others and they also love Paul. And so they're inspired by Paul's example and they want to carry that on to honor him, but also because they love God and people. And then others see Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to advance themselves. Because let's face it, Paul was kind of the man in the church. He just was. And, And with Paul tied up, other people thought, well, now maybe I could get a little recognition. I could advance. And so they're out there preaching Jesus like Paul was preaching Jesus. And they were doing it, it says, from selfish ambition, not from pure motives, not sincerely. Literally in the Greek, that phrase was referring to precious metals that were mixed with base alloy. In other words, they were mixing the precious gold of God's gospel with the base alloy of their selfish ambition. And this happens in ministry all the time. Happens with me. Wrong motives, wanting recognition, wanting to be admired. And this happens in the world all the time, not just in ministry. This happens in your relationships, right? Something happens to you and someone else sees that as an opportunity to advance themselves. That happens all the time. Happens with you at work. You see, that happened to Paul. And Paul says in verse 18, what am I to make of this? See, a lot of us are making it, gosh, it's not fair, it's just not just. I mean, here I am suffering and they're out there advancing themselves and trying to gain recognition. Their motives aren't pure. God, deal with them. Somebody deal with them. Hey, I want to blow the whistle on these guys. I'm the man, not them. Not Paul. Paul says, what should I make of this? Well, if Jesus is being preached, I'm rejoicing. He says it again. I'm going to rejoice. In other words, it's about Jesus, it's not about me. Some of these people are doing it to hurt me. It is hurtful toward me. I'm sad about it, but it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so if Jesus is being preached, I'm going to rejoice, he says. See, for Paul, life wasn't about Paul. It was about Christ. And so he wasn't destroyed when people were trying to advance themselves at his expense. Because the identity issue for him was settled. So he refused to get sucked into the drama. It doesn't say they were preaching a false gospel. Paul would not have put up with that. They're preaching the right gospel. They just have pure motives. And Paul said, I'm not going to get sucked into the drama. Listen, guys, the more we make life about Jesus and the less we make it about us, the less we get sucked into the drama. And that's what Paul was doing. 
You see, the gospel tells us that we don't need to spend our lives earning the approval of others because Jesus has already earned God's approval for us. So Paul didn't have to fight and say, hey guys, don't forget about me. I'm the apostle, man. Didn't have to be approved by those guys with bad motives. He was already approved by God in Christ. The gospel frees us to realize that while we do matter, we're not ultimate. While we are important, we're not the point. And do you know how freeing that is? We all have a proclivity to be very egocentric, to make ourselves the point, to hope and to sometimes even think that the world evolves around us. Am I the only one that ever feels that way? I am. Okay, well, I preach to myself. Sometimes I think the world evolves around me. But the more I understand of the good news of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in Christ and our love and our acceptance in Him, it frees me to realize, yeah, I might be important, but I'm not the point. I might matter, but I'm not ultimate. And that just settles me. The gospel explains success in terms of giving, not taking. Self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Going to the back, not getting in the front. And we have this American mindset of, I got to be in the front. What do kids do when they line up? They fight to get in the front, right? We do it all the time, no matter what. Just get, which is what we do on the freeway. Even if it's just one car. In the front. The gospel frees us to be okay with being in the back. Paul was okay with being in the back. Verse 19, Paul says he believes prayer changes things. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I believe prayer changes things and that if you church would pray, I'll be delivered. We're gonna pray that for some prisoners of Christ today. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything. In other words, he's saying, I'm not gonna wimp out. I'm not gonna compromise. Okay, you guys are praying for me. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to, pre- I'm going to preach and proclaim Christ even in bonds. And then he says, with all boldness, he says, Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Because for me, to live is Christ. That's what my life is about. And to die is gain. Look what he says in verse 22. If I'm going to live then this is going to mean fruitful labor for me. And honestly, I don't, I don't know what to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I've got the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And I'm convinced of this, so I know that I'm going to remain, I'm going to stay alive, and continue with you all for your progress. For you guys to grow in the gospel and for your joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul says he believes that prayer changes things and that if they pray, he would be delivered. But then he says, but you know what? Whether I live or I die, Christ is gonna be glorified in my body. Either way, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three when King Nebuchadnezzar told them to bow down and that if they didn't, they'd be thrown in the furnace. 
And then as they were about to be thrown in the furnace, they said, you know what, king? Our God is able to deliver us from you. And we think he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to compromise. And that's the attitude of Paul. God is able. I think he's going to. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to be faithful to Christ. It's got to be our attitude in life. I've had to take that attitude with my daughter's life. I know God is able to heal her. I think he will. But even if he doesn't, Christ will be glorified in our lives, in life or in death. Because as Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I, I just, Paul's saying, I just don't know what else to base my life on. What am I going to do? Make my life about surfing? Well, am I going to make it about skateboarding? Is it going to be about people who die? Those can all be part of it. Uh, but I can't find anything better to base my life on than Jesus, Paul is saying. For me to live is Christ. If, I, if I'm going to live, it's going to be about Jesus. Not these peripheral lesser things. And then he says to die is gain. And then he says, and I kind of want to die. He's honest. He says, I've got a desire to depart because that's very much better. And a lot of us can relate to that, right? Sometimes you just feel like, I saw way too many heads nod just now. (laughs) Okay. Call Pastor Todd or Sean. Chad or Billy, they'll counsel you. Way too many of you were like, yes, I want to die. (laughs) Okay, so we can relate to that. Paul said, yeah, I want to die. But see, this wasn't just a morbid like give up thing for Paul. What this was for Paul was a sincere, can't wait to be with Jesus thing. And if that's why we're nodding our heads, that's cool. It was a sincere, can't wait to be with Jesus thing. Because there's nobody better. And you say, I'm afraid that a lot, not a lot of us can say that. That when we face death, we're like, I'm not ready to die. There's things I still want to do. <laughs> what do you want to do that's better than Jesus? What is that? Is it a better career? Is it a bigger bank account? Is it a longer marriage? Is it more children? What is it that's better than Jesus? Paul wasn't morbid. He wasn't suicidal, but he expressed this true sense of, I can't think of anything better than to be with Jesus. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. But Paul said, if I can't be with Jesus then my life is going to count for Jesus. If I can't be with Jesus, my life is going to count for Jesus. If I'm going to live on in the flesh, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. And in living for Christ, he would endeavor to live for others. He's saying to the church in Philippi, verse 24 and 25, I'm going to remain on in the flesh. I think it's more necessary for your sake. I'm going to remain and continue with you for your progress and for your joy in the faith. He was willing to make his life count for Christ and in doing that, to live for others. You see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus tells me that my identity and security is in Christ and this frees me to give everything I have because in Christ I have everything I need. My identity and my security are settled in Christ. That frees me to give everything that I have because in Christ I have everything I need. Knowing that Jesus has covered my past 
and secured my future, I'm now free to give away my present. Most of us spend a lot of time in regret about our past. The cross of Jesus Christ deals with that. Most of us spend a lot of time anxious about our future. Christ has secured that. Most of us spend a lot of time trying to hold on to something in the present. Christ allows us to let go of that. What's keeping you from being able to give yourself away? What is the one great purpose that you're living for? If it's not Jesus, it's something less. Paul said, Christ shall now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And for us, that's somewhat ethereal because not many of us are threatened with death because of our belief in Jesus Christ. But hundreds of thousands of Christians today are living that. We're going to see a short video about some of them and then we're going to pray together in groups.